what it did was kickstarted a piece of research which lasted about four or five years. And basically, it kind of came up with, eventually, the mathematical formula that the brain uses in its biological state. So we call that, you know, system one precognitive state as opposed to system two, our learned cultural, emotional, top-down responses. The research was presented to, um, effectively, the commercial sector by a university called Queen Mary University London in, I think it was about 2014, 2015, and they basically came to market and said, look, we've got the mathematical formula that the brain uses to identify and prioritize what it sees in that zero moment of truth. So we said, well, that's amazing. If you've got that, we can bake that into a piece of software. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Brains Behind AI, the show where we meet the innovators, entrepreneurs, and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit. And from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brains Behind AI. In today's episode, we will talk about how AI can predict and define the experience users have with the content they interact with. We have with us Mark Bainbridge, an industry leader and an authority in the space to tell us more about it. So Natalie, let's introduce Mark to the audience. Absolutely. Um, thank you for being here, Mark. So for the audience, Mark Bainbridge is one of the founders of Dragonfly AI a predictive visual analytics platform that uses cutting-edge neuroscience to accurately predict how the design of any content or experience influences what your audience sees first across any channel. Mark is also the CEO and founder of Bainbridge Cooper Associates, a marketing and commercial growth consultancy, and co-founder of ProMarketer, an AI suite for the marketing and communication industry. Mark has over 30 years of experience as an award-winning senior leader and CMO across a broad range of industries, from the British Army to banking. The common denominator is that he helps solve reputational challenges. Mark graduated from Cardiff University from the UK. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Hey, Mike, before we dive into the, the, the business and what you do as a company, we want to learn a bit about you. What got you thinking about this and, and how did the idea came and, and when did it happen? Okay, well, um, I suppose having spent a long time in a traditional kind of brand environment, so, I, you know, I did, I did marketing roles for, for the best part of that 30 years, lucky enough to work on some really, really interesting brand propositions. But I think you realize after doing anything for a long time is that the, the travel lines you can operate in are reasonably narrow. So although you have you know, a little bit of flexibility around innovation, the reality in quite a lot of instances is that you know, businesses are quite slow to really change. I think when I finished my last work called Proper Job, when I was actually on somebody else's payroll, it was probably back in about 2010. And I kind of went out into the world thinking, what I'd really like to do is you know, establish all the things that I might not have been able to see from the position I was in. And the problem with a lot of senior um, marketing people in particular is they, they kind of get cosseted by the agency supply networks they build. And it's obviously not necessarily within their interests to show you 
genuine innovation because it distracts from what they, they're already offering you. So I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, I came out into the world with a really fresh approach thinking I'm just really interested to see what's out there that I haven't seen before. And I was honestly absolutely amazed at how much really super smart, particularly creative tech, is emerging or was emerging back then, actually. And I think, you know, that, that kind of set me on this path to wanting to do something different. I think, you know, looking back on it, I used to be responsible for, you know, really significant budgetary spend. And I think if I'd known what I know now, I would have spent that completely differently. So I think, you know, for me, it was a great, almost like a second, a second sort of innings, really, to get back out there and to see a whole new tranche of innovation coming to market, some very, very smart stuff. Obviously, you know, we were in the mature stages of, of the internet, so we know digital inside out. And there are now a whole new generation of you know, tech-based solutions, artificial intelligence-based solutions, which are making real sense of it. I came across a, a great friend and mentor, a guy called Sahir Sidholm, who runs a company called Hackmasters, and was privileged enough to join the kind of Hackmasters network. And we spent a lot of time over the previous sort of three years you know, going around the world, basically looking at the markets, how they were operating, hacking new business solutions based on forecast predictions. So thinking about what the world's going to look like in 30 years' time, let alone right now, and starting to anticipate, you know, what kind of things were going to change? What was our relationship with consumer going to be like? And I think, you know, coming back from all that, it just set, it set me on a path thinking, you know, I don't want to boil the ocean. I just want to produce something that has a genuine meaning. And we were lucky enough to kind of have been working on Dragonfly for a little while. And it suddenly struck me that actually I should just put my, my efforts completely into this, this proposition. As I think many people are now looking at artificial intelligence solutions, and they are in, in, in the, their intrinsic nature fundamentally quite simple. They're just incredibly accurate at what they do because they're based on very, very smart architectures, which are basically replicating what human beings try to do but just do it faster and more accurately. And that applies pretty much to everything I've seen so far. But yeah, it's been an amazing journey of discovery. Ironically, I actually started with a little mini expedition where I thought after my last sort of full-time role, I was just going to go and paddle around the wilderness of um, the Algonquin National Reserve for, for two or three weeks just to clear my mind and have a really good think about what I wanted to do when I came back. At the end of that, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to throw myself into this and really go for it. How long ago was that? Like, when did you decide to really dive into it? I was trying to think when I left my last, my last full-time role. So I was working for a company called EMAP. We were a big B2B trade business here in the UK. I think I finished with them about, in mean, about 2011. So it was probably, you know, just at the beginning of this, this decade. So, yeah, I mean, and a lot's happened. I mean, certainly a lot of the early stuff was, was fairly sort of clunky and embryonic. But as the, the kind of the years progressed, I mean, we were starting to see some, some really interesting solutions. Around 2015, I kind of hooked up with a business called Black Swan, who are a, an amazing trend prediction business. So they basically, they, they listen to, not just the internet, they listen to, to data um, at scale, and they start to predict and forecast what's likely to happen. And I love all this kind of probability mapping, this whole notion of, you know, there are of preferable futures that we can look at, the ones which are, you know, the, the, the sort of the extremes of, you know, if everything is data-led, you know, how would we actually feel about functioning in societies where all of our decisions are made based on data? You could argue you get a, a much more robust, factually-based set of guidelines to operate within. By human nature, we probably don't like the idea of that. 
So the alternative extremists to sort of back away from it and reject all technology and all data. A kind of preferable future is somewhere mapped between the two extremes where we find a, you know, the best of both worlds, in effect. That's great. So I'm, I'm curious, right? You said this is important. This is maybe where I should spend the second innings of my career. Uh, how did you decide about putting the team together? Did you start building an MVP? Where, where did you go from there when you realized that this idea is real? So we, we were actually running a number of propositions at the same time. So, so I had a very early bit of a full start. And I think, you know, very happy to talk about the highs and lows. So the full start was the one that didn't work very well, which was called TechSource. And that was a platform, actually, ironically enough, designed to try to identify all of the emerging technologies out there and to allow businesses effectively to engage with propositions that they might not stumble across if they were searching under normal search terms. The, the, the challenge for a lot of innovation companies and AI and technology-based solutions is you know, they, they've identified a solution to a problem which they understand in, intrinsically and have solved it. The problem is they have to sell it into a market which is sometimes culturally and intellectually in a different place to where they are. So they may think it's superb and they may think that every big FMCG or retailer in the world should be using it, but the reality is these businesses take time to adapt, new, and, adapt and adopt new t- technologies. So the idea of TechSource was it was enabling people to kind of get out there and see what was happening. And we had about, about 8,000 companies around the world listed on this platform, and I thought this was generally going to be fantastic. Trouble was, you know, I think we were probably a little bit ahead of ourselves. And what I learned there was, you know, building the right team and, and a team you can genuinely trust, rely on, was really important. I was a bit let down by those guys. So we kind of had another go. And, and actually, I think that's probably one of my fundamental principles now for, you know, working per se is, hey, you've got to work with people you really like and trust because you're going to have some mm-hmm. good time and you're going to have some really bad times and you've got to be able to iron out both without, you know, losing the plot. The other thing is you've got to believe that what you've got has a relevance to a market and it's a market you properly understand. I think, you know, having consulted into a lot of startups prior to actually starting my own, you know, you kind of get a sense they're really, really amazing people, fantastic, super smart, you know, they've they've got phenomenal strategic and development capabilities, but they've created a solution without actually asking the market whether it needs it. But it's really hard to sell those kind of propositions back in retrospectively because you're trying to make something fit. Whereas if you'd started by collaborating with the market you're trying to solve problems for, you know, your solution is just going to be that much better. Besides, if you have founding kind of client partners you work with on that basis, chances are they'll come on the journey with you. They'll feel invested in what you've developed. And they'll feel like they have a kind of like, an intellectual share in what it's doing anyway. So, so, so I think great people, you know, a real sense of relevancy, understanding of the market you're selling into, and, and a bit of trust and belief. Yeah. Thank you. That's really valuable advice. And I did want to ask, how did you come up with the name Dragonfly AI? It's <laughs> <laughs> a brilliant story. So um, it, was, it was nurtured originally in Black Swan. So, so the, mm-hmm. the story started back in 2010 with a piece of academic research. We can come back to that if you, if you would like to note it. It was kind of sheltered within Black Swan where I and my, my co-founder David were both working also with our chairman Richard. So we were all part of that fabric. And the chief exec, who's a superb guy called Steve King, very charismatic Welshman, 
he set us the task of creating a name for the proposition. It was originally called Design Navigation Analysis, which I think was, was a name generated in order to have the acronym DNA. And so it was Visual DNA was its original point of perspective. Steve just said to us, look, we need a better name. It's, it's dry, it's boring, it doesn't have any sort of sense of to it. And we came up with millions of names and presented them all to him. And somebody just said, it's a bit like a dragonfly's eye. And he said, I like that. You know why I like it? Because it's dragons and dragons come from whales. So that's why I <laughs> Nothing else other than Steve's kind of immense patriotism for being Welsh. Mm-hmm. I love that. We really like it. It's, very, it's a great name. Yeah, I love the Welsh roots there. That's awesome. So, so, you, so as you started fleshing this out, did you find a customer or a client that you thought, let's do a MVP, a minimum viable product with them, let's try this out? Or, or did you build the whole thing out and then take it to market? How did you approach going into the market? Yeah, so interesting. So just to kind of backpedal a little bit, Dragonfly is born out of a piece of academic research, really, really interesting but basically was looking at how to give robotic devices human visual interpretation skills so they could operate in their contexts effectively using human decision-making. What it did was kick-started a piece of research which lasted about four or five years. And basically it kind of came up with, eventually, the mathematical formula that the brain uses in its, in its biological state. So we call that you know, system one precognitive state as opposed to system to our learned cultural emotional top-down responses the research was presented to um, effectively the commercial sector by a university called queen mary university london in i think it was about 2014 2015 and they basically came to market and said look we've got the mathematical formula the brain uses to identify and prioritize what it sees in that zero moment of truth so we said, well, that's amazing. If you've got that, we can bake that into a piece of software. So what we did was we turned that initially into an iOS application. And, um, you know, to be fair, it was a, a bit of a clunky user experience, but it did some pretty amazing things. It commuted that maths into heat mapping with some indexing metrology over the top of it. Basically, it meant you could ingest anything you wanted to, look at it, and it would give you an instant view of what, what the human brain is seeing in sequence. So very, very powerful kind of concept. If you can you know, basically tell a brand, we can show you what your consumers see first in any, you know, in any channel, in any content environment. And we live with the iOS device for quite a long time. In fact, one of our, uh, our early stage clients who, who we still work with and, and actually has gone really well is, is a big global pharmaceutical company. They were very brave. Their shopper science lab was based in London. They could see the value in, in the iOS proposition. And they, they started to adopt it to look at the proper packaging design, to install marketing. So all the t- traditional shopper marketing stuff they've been doing through human panels, they started to test using Dragonfly and realized that they were getting an immediate response using a piece of technology that was saving them you know, time and money on having to bring together human panels and then try to understand what, you know, a diffuse group of 40 people were going to tell you about what they could see, whereas we gave them an instant view saying, these are the five things you see first. So really short kind of stuff. So we were then, as a result of kind of, you know, our ability to kind of, you know, build out on that sort of account, able to get a lot of insights. So coming back to that point I was trying to make about why it's really important to understand your market, a lot of the early features we started developing were based on input we were getting from our client partner. 
which I think is absolutely the way to build tech. You know, so you build it with the partner who's going to end up using it. That way you make it superbly relevant for purpose, really. Um, it wasn't until probably we moved Dragonfly into a new code. So we, in, in 2018, we went through the processes of sort of shifting it, novating it from, from the various different entities that had interest in it into a new company, which launched in January of 2019. Thus, Dragonfly AI was kind of born. Um, and we started with the iOS app. And we started then to build out our product suite. We've now got a, a, an amazing product portfolio, which includes a Google Chrome extension, so we can look at live web assets. We've got a, effectively a web app or a kind of online desktop studio, so we can look at what the iOS app was doing, but in the context of production environments. We've got a motion analytics version, so we can test rich media, video, TVCs. And we've also built our APIs and SDKs so that we can integrate into other you know, other production environments. So we've, we've come on a long way, but it took, a, it took a while to kind of get traction and to really understand, you know, how to build this right. I think the result is we've now got a product which, which we were actually told by a VC is the market-leading visual analytics product in our sector, which, you know, that's not just us being a bit immodest. That's actually a third party who understands this stuff telling us how it is, which is really good to hear. That's absolutely amazing. So as I think about it, did you license the technology from Queen Mary? How or did you just say, okay, this is a good foundation. We can build, we can use this and build something based on that. I'm just curious if there was a tech transfer. And I know a lot of great ideas sometimes happen in a university environment, but they get buried in research. Mm-hmm. So, so what was your experience there? Queen Mary's have a really good knowledge transfer partnership and a phenomenally you know, good commercial director who leads that function. We always collaborated with them from the very outset. Um, the Dragonfly, is the original research was conducted by a guy called Professor Peter McCallum, uh, Dr. Hamid Soyel. Sadly, Peter died um, last year. We've decided to kind of you know, maintain his, his honor in, in our, our ongoing business by naming our R&D lab after him. So the McCown lab is basically where we do all of our R&D now. Um, his colleague, um, Hamid Soil, Dr. Hamid Soil, is actually our chief data scientist. So he, he's fundamentally engaged with the business, and we think that's really important. So he continues to do R&D for Dragonfly, but within the context of the commercial environment. So he's, again, understanding what the needs of clients are and helping us to build around those as well. So that, that works really neatly for us. The relationship with Queen Mary is, is commercially structured. So, you know, we license the IP. Um, it's academic IP. We've now commuted that into effectively, you know, engineering IPs. The code is, is more robust. The code is, you know, it's designed for heavy load. We kind of carry on our, our plan is with our, you know, a really complex shareholders because we do obviously have, you know, investment from, from um, Black Swan, who are part of that early part of our story, with Queen Mary's. Uh, we've also done subsequently, you know, some friends and family fundraising, but we've, we've also done a, a corporate partnering deal with a big UK company here called, called Capita. Um, uh, and all of these have, you know, helped shape our direction. I think that's another really important feature of these kind of journeys is, you know, the people you make friends with along the way will be part of your future and they will influence the direction of travel. So as with your team that you choose, the people you choose to partner with are equally important to you. So Mark, is there an industry that you targeted while you were getting your product off the ground when you first started? Yeah, well, not so much targeted as, as, as just kind mm-hmm. of 
kind of naturally gravitated. I think our, our principal forte is definitely shopping marketing and currently e-commerce. There's been a massive surge in e-commerce. I mean, I think our, the predictions we're looking at are suggesting some of these, these big businesses are really, really, you know, doubling down on, on their, their newfound sort of online customers. And I don't think that customer behavior is going to change swiftly back to anything closer to what was normal before. So I think we've got very used to, you know, using the internet for pretty much all our purchasing. So it makes eminent sense for us to help brands to optimize their e-commerce environments. So, so you know, the applications are pretty extensive. Um, I suppose, you know, we, we are keen to branch out of um, our, our core areas, which are basically shopper and e-commerce. We're doing more and more and more with agencies. I mean, they think they're, they're seeing this as, a way to do everything from validating you know, their, their approach to conceptual visual design for brands through to providing new forms of consultancy services which are helping them to accelerate and optimize the brand partners they're working with. That's great. That's excellent. So in terms of your business model, is it a subscription that your clients buy? Does it come with consulting? How do you engage on a business side? So with a new client, typically we start with a kind of a proof of concept type engagement where they might buy a single user license or a couple of users, which we train those people. We work alongside them. We typically find projects we could work on. So it could be packaging design projects or it could be you know, digital assets that are being you know, re-engineered or transformed. We help them to understand how to use it. One of our new clients is um, a prestige retailer in London, Harrods. They're looking at how they can use Dragonfly in the context of their premium visual merchandising in store now that they're beginning to reopen to the public. So, so there are lots of different ways of working with us, but it typically starts with a proof of concept. We charge based on licenses. The license value um, is commensurate with the number of licenses you use and the length of time. Um, the training is provided by our kind of super user who, who's based in London. And uh, yeah, I mean, we can get people up and running on this within about well, within, within a few hours if they're really, really keen to get moving. But typically, the, the delay tends to be on the side of the partner because what they're trying to do is to work out where something like this, which theoretically is quite disruptive to the way they work. I mean, it's, it's a new thing. It's, it's, it's got some quite radical incident views. It can challenge quite dramatically what you're looking at. What we found also is that we need to land it with a bit of care with the creative community. It's not there to, to mark homework. It's there to augment and add to their, you know, their existing experience and genius in terms of their creativity. What it'll do, quite often, it will validate their thinking already. But our view is if, if it adds a 5% sizzle to a piece of creative work or, or an online experience, then most instances, that's an awful lot more they're going to get from pretty much anything else they're working on. And where do you see the future of Dragonfly AI? Wow, well, I mean, I'd love it to be getting traction across the brand space, across the retail space. I mean, I think, you know, we have so many new challenges to face as a result of what we've all been through mm-hmm. over the last six months that I think we're going to have to innovate, you know, out yeah. of nature. That there's no other way. You know, we've, we've been really cautious through it. I think, you know, it's been, it's been a challenging time. I mean, we've, we've done okay and we're not being modest. We've worked hard. We've doubled down on our tech build that out and we've landed some new business which is really good but you know we appreciate it's been a really tough time so we've also been trying to be as helpful as possible to clients mm-hmm. you know, giving them help support you know trying to help them to you know solve problems if we can and we felt that actually 
that, that's been really helpful. When I, I remember I was head of brand for um, a Scottish bank, which limits it to two here in the UK, back in 2008 at the last recession. And I can remember the chief exec, very, very wise words. He said, it's the customers you put your arm around now will be your customers for the next 10 years. Sure. He's absolutely right. You know, you know, put it out there. Sometimes you don't have to make money instantly. What you have to do is to solve a problem, create a value, and be part of that solution. And then inevitably people come back and go, hey, they were, they were the really good guys who just helped us. You know? Yeah. And I think that that, is, that's been a really important part of our culture is that, that culture. Of, yeah. that, is, that is great advice indeed. So now let's just, looking back at your experience starting with Black Swan and then building this out, what advice or what lessons learned do you have that anyone listening to this can benefit from Say if they're thinking about it more as an entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, I say I say choose your choose your partners carefully, choose them well because you you are going to have to work with them for at least you know three to five years. And as I said, you know I think some of those times will be good and some of them will be will be difficult. Do things based on evidence and facts, and I think this is a really important leadership principle anyway. You know the days of hero leaders I think are long gone. Well, the idea that somehow somebody with amazing charisma can kind of jump out of a box and tell you what to do. Like people need to trust. And that comes right down to the fundamentals of setting up and running a new business. You know, base it on trust, base it on your ability to adapt, be resilient, be courageous, you know, all those kind of fundamental human virtues, which which sometimes are quite hard to get reference for until you're, you're thrown into some you know, chaos and have to try and sort it out. That, that's when you see, you know, the real qualities of the people around you. It's all about building intrinsic commitment. You, you've got to have a business that believes everyone's pulling their weight. You have no passengers. You all fervently are trying to make it a better place, better, a better organization. And don't give up. I mean, I think, you know, the problem we see in so many environments from, you know, almost from business development through to, to just you know, business, business growth generally is, um, it's very, very easy to give up. And when you talk to people about things like sales engagement, which is, it can be a bit of a grubby term, but at the end of the day, we're all in business. We have to sell things. That's what we're here to do. We hope our proposition matches the market. So that's really important to understand it. But also, nobody's going to buy on the strength of you sending them an email. You know, you have to build a rapport. You have to have a bit of trust. I think, you know, what we've established is, People buy from us because they're trusting our advice and they believe the tool is a phenomenal iteration of, of academic genius and, 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 and actually has proof points which prove that it does what it says. So I think, you know, be, be courageous, but don't be foolhardy. The kind of qualities that we look for, obviously, you know, competency and confidence, you know, that, that the people have the strength to make decisions, but will ask for support if they need it. To be consistent, I mean, I, I think one of the words that distresses me most in the technology space is the word pivot. In my mind, pivot means you change your mind. You set out to do one thing and now you're doing something totally different. So I don't think businesses should be pivoting because typically pivots are because you didn't get the estimate right in the first place. So you're now to change your mind. So do the due diligence, make sure you understand what you're trying to serve, the market you're in, and, and deliver against that, and, and you should be okay. And I think a bit of maturity, we're lucky. We, we laugh sometimes because we're all kind of, you can tell by the gray hairs, we're all a bit older. So we call ourselves a grown-up rather than a startup because we've already been there 
and done some of these mm-hmm. things before. We're very lucky because you know that helps us to you know to to bring the kind of the qualities of of our sort of you know young technologists and the experience of our mature business leaders to kind of create a, a really positive, harmonious environment where we where we get things done. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's about the relationships. Totally, totally. Yeah. I think in my career experience, it's always been that way. Your license yeah. depends on your network and mm-hmm. your reputation and cash. You know, it's what people think about you. And I think you know, I've tried pretty hard most of my career. You know, to to, to you know to not get that wrong. And I, I think yeah. know, there are tools out there which really help us to do that. Now, I think you know, for me, LinkedIn is probably about the most useful business tool I think I've ever come across. Wow! Yeah, you can tell through your business too, and just through talking to you. So that connection. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at the clock. Here. I think we have about ten minutes left. So I'm thinking we make this uh, the rapid fire. And again, yeah, Judas, uh, <laughs> you're the first, first person we're doing this with, so forgive us. Um, but but I think the goal here is to capture the essence of all the things you've mentioned yeah. into mm-hmm. into a ten minute that that we can share. So thinking about your idea, right? What triggered you to say that this is the idea that we can potentially build a business on? I think um, having spent quite a lot of time over the years looking at lots of great ideas, you know, I've become better at identifying the ones that are genuine. And I saw this, and the minute I saw it, I just thought, yeah, I, I get this. If this does what it says it does, I don't think there's anything quite like it. Adoption, I think, will be very straightforward because people will just understand it. You know, it's, 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 it's sensible AI, but people just look at it and they get it. And um, can you take us a through um, the artificial intelligence you use and what Dragonfly AI does? Yeah, so basically it uses um, a, a, a mathematical algorithm which mm-hmm. is based on scientific research that came out of a university called Queen Mary's. Um, mm-hmm. What they identified is the brain uses five neural pathways in the way that we biologically process visual information and prioritize it. Dragonfly basically replicates that it means that anything can ingest into it and use that formula to show you what the human brain is seeing first. Great. How did you validate that there is a real market for what you have? We spent a lot of our early years when we were being kind of nurtured within Black Swan, testing out with existing clients. We were lucky in the sense that we were in a, an already operation, operational environment, so it was easier for us to take Dragonfly in to see clients that we already knew for other things, to show it to them and get their feedback. We found that that sort of collaboration and its build out was really valuable. And we've, we've kind of stuck with that ever since. You know, we think the client input is vital to the development of our new features. And you have a wide range of experience. Do you have advice for aspiring entrepreneurs? Ooh, well, I'm sure I've got as many things wrong as I've got right over the years. <laughs> I think, you know, the, the, the <laughs> degree in hindsight is that you, you kind of spot things a bit easier. I just say, you know, believe in yourself. You know, mm-hmm. my fundamentals are work with people you trust and like. And, and only work on things that you genuinely believe believe have a value. And, and I think you, you can seldom go wrong with that as the fundamental truth. What advice do you have for industry leaders that are in a position where they can define and set the stage for what future should look like? Do you have any advice given you are working on something that's cutting edge? It's a fine line between, you know, wholesale innovation and resistance to change. Well, I believe that, you know, 
It's probably not my word, but I think we're in the foothills of a crisis that's going to go on for a while yet. I think leaders need to think sensibly. But again, it comes back to the fundamental thought within really powerful leadership is it has to be based on, on fact and evidence. So you know, make your decisions not based on whimsical emotions or what your son told you or your daughter told you, which is typically the focus group of one we, we've heard quite a lot about in the past. Is, you know, listen carefully assimilate the knowledge you've got and then you're paid to make a judgment and when you make that judgment you're responsible for it so own it and, and deliver it. and when you launched dragonfly ai was there an industry um that stuck out that used your services and product the most and which industry do you think needs it the most well i think we, we started interestingly we started in, in effectively pharma product packaging um, and, and shopper marketing, and that, that's definitely been a mainstay of what we do. We are now seeing many, many more agencies taking an interest in it. FMCG, I think, is beginning to understand that it needs a new type of relationship with consumers. So, you know, the ability to kind of understand what visual connections you can make with a consumer is really important. I think the industry that needs us most genuinely is probably retail bricks and mortar. And if you look at the, the kind of the, the forecast transformation of e-commerce and the growth rates it's got. You know, if you are a if you're a, if you're a retail owner in a physical space, we can probably help you quite significantly in terms of engagement. But you know, I think we've all got a, a long road ahead of us. And um, you know, my view is collaboration. You know, connect out there. The best way to market is to connect with other entrepreneurs in other businesses. You know, we learned that from pretty much everything we worked on from Hackmasters to, to Dragonflies. You know, it's about the networks you operate in and it's about your reputation and how you, you know, how you basically engage and what you can do to support. So looking back, given the Dragonfly is doing really well now, if you could redo one thing, what would be that one thing that you would redo? I would have done it sooner. Simple as that. Instead of, you know, I think perhaps some of the other things that we were doing, because I think, uh, you know, we, we worked on a number of different propositions for a period of time. I think, you know, in my heart, I could tell that Dragonfly was the one which was going to go fast. And we could probably have gone a bit faster a bit earlier if we if we made that decision sooner. But I mean, you know, at the time, it was exciting working on lots of different fronts. And we didn't really know which one was going to be successful. We've been working through a strategy program recently, and we have an exercise in it called a pre-mortem which is basically looking at the principal reasons why a business has failed in three to five years' time so that we can then mitigate against them and identify the trigger for when they like the maybe, maybe showing themselves. And I think, you know, e even in a small-scale environment in a startup, it's worth thinking about your, your three-year plan quite early, not least because when you do start to attract investments, whether that's private or VC or, or whatever, is you will need to prove that you've thought through not just this fantastic product you've got, but how you're going to scale it, how you're going to grow it. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment that you had this aha idea or aha moment, or maybe a company um, inspired you with AI? Well, I think, yeah, yes, actually, yes. And I'll tell you what, it was, it was, I, I used to, every quarter, when I was, I, was, I was chief marketing officer for the British Army for about 10 years, every quarter I'd have this research company come in I slightly dread it. It would be a four-hour research debrief where we would sit in front of 124 slides and each one would have about 10 questions and answers on it from our target audience. It was a really vital piece of research, but there was so much of it. 
I just remember sitting there then thinking the way my brain works is I, I know which things I'm looking for. When I see a, you know, a small percentile shift in something significant, that's for me a problem. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could just kind of capture that knowledge? I don't have to do it. We've got almost like an automated service that just says, these are the shifts, these are the things you should be looking out for. It would have saved me, you know, a huge amount of time. I actually would have got to the essence of what I needed to do faster. And I think what happens is that, that, that smart operators kind of learn that's how they work. You know, you've got to understand your metrics because the metrics give you the insights that helps you to make the decision. But it's a rare art. And I think if you can automate some of these things, which I've heard fantastic, you know, AI that now it has the equivalent capability of, a, of an ophthalmic consultant with 10 years' experience can now look at the human eye and can give you the same readout that this consultant would give you in seconds, which is democratizing access to vital services. You know, if you're, if you're about to go blind, you don't want to wait six months for an appointment. You want to know tomorrow what you can do to help. So I think the, these are the kind of applications where, you know, AI will, will, will start to gain real credibility. I mean, I think, you know, as with all things, there's a bit of a fear factor about it. You know, will it make me redundant? Will it replace me? Will it, will it you know, end the way I, I, I know the world today? The answer is, no, it's going to augment and help. The reality is if you, if you engage and help to shape it, it'll be even better for you. Thank you, Mark. This was amazing. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Super informational, and we really, truly appreciate your wisdom. So thank you for being on with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainsbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.